Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Anyone who's spent time in Washington knows the name Steve Perlstein as the longtime business columnist for the Washington Post. He's an institution in that town and often one of its most eloquent critics. He won the Pulitzer Prize in 2007 for alerting the country to the impending financial collapse that followed. And now he's written a book called Can American Capitalism Survive? Why Greed is Not Good, Opportunity is Not Equal, and Fairness Won't Make Us Poor. I sat down with Steve last week on his visit to the Institute of Politics, where we talked about the state of our economy, the state of capitalism, and given his past proclivity for seeing into the future a disturbingly dark forecast about what might happen in our economy next. Steve Perlstein, it's great to see you again. I think the last time I saw you was when I was back in the administration and in the midst of the economic disaster of the, uh, of the 2000s. Um, you wrote this book called Can American Capitalism Survive, which is a huge question. I got a lot of stuff to ask you about that. Uh, but first I want to ask you how the, uh, the son of haberdashers winds up as the economic business savant of the Washington Post. Uh, as, as these things usually go, it's a, a somewhat uh, indirect route. Um, I was uh, in politics, actually. Uh, well, before I, that, you yeah. were you you. you let, let's go back even further. Yeah. First, tell me about your folks and. Okay, um, uh, so and, my my grandfather started uh, my grandfather started a clothing store uh, in 1929. Not a very propitious, uh, propitious year for uh, starting a <laughs> yes. business uh, in Boston, and uh, it grew during his lifetime and my and my father's to be. A, one of the premier uh, men's clothing stores in the country, and it was one of the first stores to bring a lot of Italian uh, designers to the United States. Um, very high-end store, very successful. Um, and and you, uh, you never had any thought of, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this torch and run with it. Uh, I didn't, uh, partly because my mother drilled into me um, from almost uh, birth that it wouldn't be a good idea. Uh, uh, He and his father uh, didn't get along very well, even though they're in the business, and she didn't want that to happen to me. Um, And she desperately wanted me to be um, a lawyer, uh, and uh, I... uh, I went to college at Trinity College, and one day, freshman year, that's right, Trinity College in Connecticut, and freshman year, I don't know, the the newspaper, which was called the Trinity Tripod, you know, invited freshmen to come and see if they wanted to participate, and so I went, and I don't know what I was thinking, um, 
but I wrote a few stories, and I sort of liked it, and I guess I was reasonably good Were at it. Were you always a good writer? Not always. Um, actually, I, I sort of got to be a good writer um, uh, doing that. Um, uh, I was a good writer of thank you notes. Well, maybe <laughs> that uh, that maybe tell you something. Um, but I I, uh, I I sort of took to it, and I actually became the editor of the paper in my sophomore year, which was a little ahead of my time. But um, uh, newspaper politics being what it was. Um, and then I sort of never looked back. I, when I graduated from uh, college, I actually wanted to be the editor and publisher of a small-town New England newspaper, and ideally in Camden, Maine. That was my... That was well, my, that's a pretty specific ambition right It, it was, because uh, I, I, I love Maine and, and I love to be in the ocean. Turns out, I didn't know this at the time, but Walter Cronkite owned that paper. <laughs> so, the paper in Camden, in Maine. Camden, Maine. Actually, he was a great sailor, uh, and uh, I never quite did that. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, I started out in a very small paper. Maybe you know about it, David, in New Hampshire, called the Foster's Daily Democrat in Dover, in New Dover, Hampshire. Yes, uh, the last newspaper in America to still bear the name of its owner, uh, and the, the Fosters were Democrats in New Hampshire after the Civil War. So now think about that. <laughs> that <laughs> yeah, mean they, they were they must have stood out. Yeah, they were opposed to the party of Lincoln. Um, uh, and uh, anyway, I worked for a couple of papers in New Hampshire. Um, and then one day I got a call from someone nobody remembers. Maybe you do, a senator named John Durkin. Sure do. Yeah. Uh, Democrat. And he was looking for a uh, press secretary. And I was despairing of the fact that I was ever going to get a job at a big city paper. This was uh, 1974. Everyone wanted to be Woodward and Bernstein suddenly. And, yes. And uh, uh, it was... The market uh, was glutted. The market was glutted. So uh, I, I took the, the senator up on his on his offer. But by the time I got down to well, Washington... Well, let me just yeah, ask you something, yeah. because I... I um, you know, I was a young newspaper man at the time here at the Chicago Tribune, ah. and um, when I left the newspaper in 1984 to go to work for Paul Simon when he was running for the Senate in Illinois, I was taken aside. That I remember Doug Neeland was an ass- the assistant managing editor, and he took me aside and said, you're making the mistake of your life. You'll never be able to come back to journalism, and uh, you're shutting a door that will never open again. Did you have hesitance at the time, and had you been interested in, in politics? I had been, um, but I, I mostly thought that actually it was a way, uh, way up in journalism. Um, no one gave me that speech um, at that time, and... Uh, uh, I thought it was a way to get out of New Hampshire and, and get into you know a bigger arena. Um, as it turns out, uh, I never was his press secretary because by the time I got down there, he'd fired everybody. Yeah, he was uh, on the difficult. Staff. Right? He was a difficult yeah. guy, and so um, there was this uh, receptionist who he had known for a long time, and and me, and that was all that was there because he'd fired everybody else, and and I became the head of the office. Uh, we, we called him <laughs> administrative assistant at that time. I guess that's kind of a good news, bad news situation. Yeah. Huh? But I had a great time for that year, and the, and the Senate in 1976 was a wonderful place, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, it was a very important year. It was the last year of um, the Ford administration. There was a Democratic, uh, there was a primary going on, and Democratic primary. Uh, it was a very exciting year, and. And uh, I had a ball, and I learned a lot. And, uh, and let, let me ask you about yeah. the Senate at yeah. that time. I, I ask people all the time about the difference between the Senate that existed then and into the you know '80s, and uh, versus uh, what we see today. We should in the in uh, uh, acknowledgement of of the 
moment we're in, we, we were just sitting together and watching Senator Collins' speech uh, on the Kavanaugh uh, nomination. But uh, you must have some reflections on how that institution has changed over time. It's, uh, it's, it's really sad. Uh, it was... Uh, people um, really wanted to get things done. They were cooperative with each other. They were respectful. Uh, obviously, there were, were differences of opinion, but the aim was always to solve a problem. Uh, it wasn't to play games uh, uh, so that we could get an advantage and win the next election. That It just wasn't done, and people um, uh, worked well with each other well across the aisles. In fact, the bigger differences were within each party than really between parties. We had a, a majority leader, uh, Mike Mansfield, yeah. and a minority leader, Hugh Scott. Um, you know, if if you if Mike Mansfield had to go to the bathroom, uh, he would have said, "Hugh, why don't you just take over while I'm while I'm out?" I mean, they would have trust. They just trusted each other not to screw each other, and. Uh, and uh, they, they were who are the who are the who are the people who impressed you? You must, as a young man, observed the the senators who were there. Who are the people who you look back at and say these were giants? Well, one of my favorite was a guy named Jim Allen, who sat next to my senator, and I used to sit on the floor oftentimes and talk to Jim Allen, and he was such a gentleman. He. Uh, he was a master of parliamentary procedure, and he would often give me, uh, I'd ask him questions, and he would give me advice on how to handle something so that on behalf of my, my uh, senator, who was in a different party, uh, Phil Hart, uh, probably my favorite, yeah, of Michigan, probably my Democratic, uh, Democratic senator, uh, my probably, uh, just, uh, just a real hero for mine. He was just a, a principled, uh, thoughtful um, a person. I, the one thing I remember... Um, this would never happen today. There was a big tax bill came up that year, and the chairman of the of the finance committee was um, uh, Senator Long from Louisiana, Russell Long, who, Russell yes. Long, who was, uh, you know, who's a character, uh, uh, and you know, if you were sort of liberal Democrat like I was and my boss was, you weren't you were suspicious of 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 him because uh, he was in with a lot of oil and gas interests and that sort of thing, Louisiana, not surprisingly. And in fact, um, the Republicans didn't really oppose uh, Long on, on this huge tax bill. They, they were with him. And the opposition was led by Senator Kennedy. And in fact, so in, 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 that, in that rare instance, the minority was represented by another member of the Democratic Party, which was Senator Kennedy. And they went at it for two weeks you know, 10 hours a day on the floor with these big books, you know, hmm. tax law is pretty complicated. And, you know, Teddy Kennedy wasn't known as, you know, the guy who did all that much homework on these things. And he wasn't even on the committee. Uh, but he was basically representing the opposition. And it was, uh, I sat there for two weeks watching them talk about policy in an intelligent way. Um, and Teddy Kennedy lost most of the votes. Uh, because the Republicans were with Russell Long and the conservative Democrats. But it's a sort of, um, first of all, the members knew their stuff. Secondly, they they were willing to make, you know, compromises. Every once in a while, Long would say, well, if you give me this, I'll give you that. And, and they sort of just did it right out in the open, and, 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 and it worked well. And, you know, the bill passed. Uh, I don't remember anything about the bill, but to me, that was it, it's the kind of thing that you don't see um, happen today. And uh, there was the assumption that we're going to do a bill. You know, we're going to get this done. Um, and... Uh, we and, just don't and, have that. And um, 
And what what are the factors that you ascribe? I mean, I have my own views on this, yeah. but what are the factors that you ascribe to this transition? Uh, the increase in money in politics. Um, the and with that, and con- consistent with it, um, the the money comes from the top. It comes through the top, and so the leadership actually has a lot more power. In those days, Mike Mansfield never would even dare tell Russell Long, here's what's going to be in the bill and here's what not's going to be in the bill. The, the committees decided. And the chairman of the committee, although very powerful, had to work with the members of his committee. Uh, and a lot of authority and responsibility was down at the committee level. Mm-hmm. And if it were true today, you would get a lot more done. The committees know how to work with each other. Well, this was, of course, John McCain's last big oration right. to the Senate, return to regular order, mm-hmm. let the committees do their work. And in fact, his Armed Services Committee function uh, pretty well. But uh, I, yes, I, in your book, and we'll get to it, uh, you uh, you talk about money in politics, and it's it sounds like you think it's uh, one of the principal roots of problems, not just in our not just in our democracy, but also in our economy. And uh, but but just hold the thought because I want to get through yeah. your story. So Durkin, difficult as you suggested, yeah. uh, finally approached you w- with orders that you couldn't relative to personnel. Is that right? Uh, as a matter of fact, yes. Um, I'm not sure how you knew that, but that's true. He, want, he wanted me to fire people um, uh, for or make them do things that were ridiculous. And I said, look, I'm not going to do that. And um, how You were a young guy. This, you were a Senate, essentially a chief of staff yes. of a United States senator, and you were in your 20s. Uh, was that a hard decision to to walk? Uh, I didn't walk. He fired me. Oh, I see. Uh, but I I just wouldn't do what what, what well, he said. That's essentially he, walking when you defy yeah. your principle. Uh, um, I had hired the whole staff. He didn't really pay that much attention to it. I mean, he did interview everybody, but he sort of interviewed the people. And I said, I think you should hire these people. We had two. We started, and I think when we finished, we had. I don't know, 25, 30 people. Um, and uh, basically, I, that's what I did for the year is I hired a staff. And uh, I didn't want them to, you know, they came in part because um, they had some respect for me and, you know, um, how I was running the office and organizing it. And, and I felt it was my job to protect them. Um, so, um, you know, that was, uh, uh, that was it. As it happened... When I was I, the day I was fired, which was just before Christmas, uh, which is not a big deal in, in my household, the Pearlstein household, <laughs> but uh, just before the Christmas recess, and I and I. What about was, Hanukkah? Does that? No, I don't do that much either. But uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, we uh, I was, had a box, and I was walking across uh, uh, the Capitol, and I ran into this congressman named Michael Harrington yeah. from Massachusetts, mm-hmm. with whom I had had uh, an internship in college. He remembered me. I remembered him. And uh, he said, you know, what are you doing? And I said, well, I just got fired as uh, Durkin's uh, uh, administrative assistant. And he said, well, I'm looking for an administrative assistant. Why don't you come see me in January? And uh, anyway, uh, long story short, I became his administrative assistant for two years. Yeah. And he, he left Congress. He did. He... Uh, uh, you'll be interested in this. He uh, he was a very insightful guy. He was he's not as great a legislator as perhaps he could have been, but he was very insightful. Uh, and he perceived that Ed Brooke, then the black Republican senator from Massachusetts, was vulnerable, and he was determined um, that he was going to run against him. 
And that's one of the reasons that I was in- interested in working for him, because I thought that'd be interesting. But uh, in the end of the day, he, got, he basically got full cold feet, and he decided not to do it. And his friend and colleague, Paul Songus, another congressman mm-hmm. from Massachusetts, said, well, Mike, if you're not going to do it, would you mind if I did it? And, uh, the, and anyway, he won. He won. <laughs> yeah. And then he it's said— Good lesson in that, you know. <laughs> I mean, uh, people ask me about this all the time. Rarely do you get punished for going too soon or— Right. taking a risk in politics. Mostly you get punished for not taking the risk. Right. Uh, and Songus won rather easily, as a matter of fact. But then, here's the thing that you'll find. You know, really, well, yeah, let me just yeah, make one yeah. other point about this. Ed Brooke was part of the cohort of moderate Republicans in the Senate at that time. This was the transition into Reagan Republicanism. Right. And many of them lost. Javits of New York, Clifford case of New Jersey. Ultimately, and I ran this race for Paul Simon in 1984 and Charles Percy. Right. So Brooke went out with a whole class of uh, moderate Republicans. And then the next thing was you saw all of these Southern Democrats or the remaining Southern Democrats one by one get. It's one of the reasons why we have such polarity now, Mm -hmm. because the caucuses are less diverse. Right. Uh, That's true. Um, Chuck Percy, I thought he was an arrogant uh, SOB when I was there, I might say. <laughs> uh, but uh, anyway, so then Mike said, well, you know, his friend, Mike Dukakis, was governor of, of Massachusetts, and he felt that Mike had really been screwing up in his first uh, term and that he was vulnerable. And so he actually then began to think that he was going to challenge Dukakis in the primary. And uh, in fact, I wrote that speech uh, too, and he never gave it. He got cold feet. And you may remember that Mike Dukakis was defeated in that primary by, by a guy named Ed King, who yeah. was uh, an incompoot. But, um, but anyway, a, quite a conservative. Conservative. But Democrat. it was really a vote against Dukakis because he had right. screwed up in his, uh, in, his, uh, in his first term. Anyway, uh, my point was that Mike had very good political instincts. And then he said, well, okay, I'm going to run for re-election. And anyway, then he didn't run for re-election either. He got cold feet because— Did you write that speech, too? I did. You you must have a—you should print this as a book. Right. Publish this, the the Michael Harrington speeches Speeches that that were never delivered. Right. So I did write the one where he announced that he wasn't going to run. So I wrote four (laughs) speeches. That one was given. (laughs) And and then you got back into— Journalism. I did. Uh, I did. I got back into journalism. Uh, there was a TV show in Boston in those days on public uh, television, WGBH, and mm-hmm. it was a nightly news show hosted by a guy named Chris Lydon. Yeah, sure. Uh, and uh, I just loved that show. So I called up Chris Lydon, who I didn't know, and I said, uh, you, know, I, you know, I love your show. Would you be interested in uh, my coming to work for you? I'm sort of a journalist, but I'm sort of a, you know, a political guy. And uh, uh, he said, yeah, I'm looking for a writer. So I became his writer, and then I became a, a TV reporter. This is a long answer to your question. So what, what did I cover as a TV reporter? Well, this guy named Paul Solman had been there, been there business and economics reporter, and he got a Neiman Fellowship. He never came back. He went to work for PBS, still does. Uh, so I got to be the business and economics reporter, so that's how I got into uh, I knew nothing about, about it other than, uh, you know, that my dad had been, you know, in business, but that was, that was the extent of my business knowledge. Uh, and that's how I got started writing about business and, uh, and politics. So this was in the uh, early 80s. Yes. Interesting time to be covering business and economics because the country was, had gone through this wrenching period uh, between Carter and Reagan and deep recession. Uh, so you must have had 
a bunch of interesting stuff to... I do. I don't remember much um, other than I wasn't a very good TV reporter and that <laughs> the business and economics is very hard to do on TV. Yeah, I would think so. And and one thing is no, there's no visuals. And we had this tape of, 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 a, of a teller at a bank counting out money and we had used it so often that we actually <laughs> we actually caused there to be a hole in the videotape. That's how often we used it. Uh, uh, anyway, GBH got into a little financial uh, trouble, and they had layoffs, and I was laid off, and uh, I didn't have anything else to do, so I decided to start my own magazine. It was called The Boston Observer. It was a political magazine, mostly. Um, I was the editor and the publisher, but I have to tell you, I was also the ad salesman and mm -hmm. the circulation director and the typesetter and the copy uh, editor. Uh, I was pretty much a one-man show, but it was a, See, it was a Durkin would have approved of that because you didn't have to fire, you, you, you couldn't fire anybody. <laughs> everybody, right. everybody, there was no one else there to fire. Well, four years later, I fired myself because uh, uh, it was very successful as an editorial product and very well respected. I think we had about 15,000 uh, paid subscribers and most of most of them in the you know the reasonably wealthy uh, uh, and democratic uh, uh, precincts uh, around Boston um, where I grew up um, uh, but uh, and uh, hard some, to support a family though well that was fine until I actually uh, then gave, my wife gave birth to our first daughter Laura and then my wife said well I'm not working anymore so um, how about you bringing home a paycheck and uh -huh. uh, that's when I went to work for a magazine called Inc., which was in those days a very successful uh, business magazine, and in its heyday, because it was it was you, if it was so thick, if you dropped it on your on your foot, you could break your toe. And what was in there was all these ads for this new thing called personal computers, uh, and uh, it was it was a pretty heady time, and I had a good time there for a couple of years as a senior editor. You could break your toe dropping a personal computer in those days. <laughs> That's <too>. true. <laughs> And, and then you went to the Post as a deputy business editor. Now, were you, did you find covering business stimulating? Or, I mean, what is it about business that, I mean, it, it seemed like you made a, a, a career decision that, well, this is a slot that was open and I took it. But you became one of the countries, you won a Pulitzer Prize, you became one of the best known business writers in the country. Um, did you develop a passion for covering it? Yeah. Um, uh, in, in 1988, when I went to the Post, um, the business section was a dumping ground. Uh, and people, uh, for, for reporters, they didn't know what else to do with. And uh, it was a politically oriented newspaper. We did have a business section. But, you know, Ben Bradley, who I love dearly uh, and who, was, who hired me, you know, I doubt if he even read it. Um, it just wasn't important. And everyone on the national staff and the foreign staff would look down on us. Um, and so that sort of became a challenge to me was to, to demonstrate to them that business and economics, which had been written about in the most boring ways. That's why they weren't interested in it. You could write about it in exciting ways and interesting ways. And you could marry the economics and the business in the same story. That was my that was my thing, and I tried to get people to do that when I was the editor of that section to try to get people to write that way, and I, I was probably not all that successful. So then I said, well, you know what? I'm going to show you how you can do this, and I became a reporter, and I started to do it, and people started to say, oh, now I know what you mean. 
uh, and that, that you could write about economics in a way that didn't use all that complicated language and it wasn't all that theoretical and wasn't mm -hmm. just about the Fed and the IMF, but that you could write about it in a way where it was very real uh, and it related to what people um, were observing in their own lives as employees or as consumers or as investors and that there was a lot of drama in it. You know, competition is, is like sports. You know, business is like sports. There's competition going on all the time and there are winners and there are losers and there are characters and there's... Uh, and people get paid very well. Yeah, well, that's true too. <laughs> and if you write about it in an interesting way, uh, people will read it, I found. Uh, and... Uh, you couldn't write it about it exactly the way you know that uh, that a straight news article would. You have to explain a lot. Um, yeah, because you were a columnist. You well, I a started out as just a reporter. Uh, some people felt by the time you know I've been a reporter for a while, they 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 wondered whether uh, because I was given a lot of license. Mm -hmm. The thing about business and economics writing is you you ha it has to be explanatory, and you have to be given some latitude in order to in order to analyze things and explain things that don't follow the sort of very standard rules of straight journalism. Yeah, um, and uh, I was pretty good at that, and that's why I eventually became a columnist because. Um, you were it, halfway there. Already. I was already halfway yeah. there. They gave me a lot of latitude. Almost all the stories I was writing were, were labeled, you'll remember this news analysis, yes. which was a little hedge for saying, okay, this isn't being written like a straight news story exactly, right. but it's not opinionated. It's mostly analytical. Mm -hmm. And so that was how I got into that. And, and uh, uh, you may, uh, you won't remember this, but in, in the early 1990s, I, I did a series of articles called uh, The Winner-Take-All Economy. Um, and many of the things that we are talking about uh, in these days uh, were talking about then, which is, for example, the rise of winner-take-all markets, in, particularly in technology. I didn't know that there was going to be a Facebook or a Google mm -hmm. at that time, but you could see it already with Microsoft, how it was a world in which the world only wanted one operating system. That's, that made the world easier to deal with. Um, and so there was these natural monopolies developing. I wrote about inequality in that series. Um, and uh, Really a precursor to the themes in right. your current book. Right. And problems that we now all see right. in uh, stark relief. So I, I need to fast forward to 2007 uh, when you started writing about what was going on uh, in the financial markets, particularly as related to these exotic instruments that had grown up around housing. W when did you start to see uh, things that really alarmed you in in the in the February and March of two thousand and seven, um, uh, there was a failure of a, an investment bank that had been involved in creating a lot of these instruments. A, a very obscure one that not many people had heard of, including me. Uh, but it went under, um, and it had it actually. The reason I got interested in it, it, it had also a, a relationship to an investment bank, a small one in Washington at the time, which I knew about. Um, so I started looking into what they did and. I, I just couldn't believe it. You mean you mean you make they make they make mortgage loans where you don't have to have a credit check? You mean they make them where uh, you don't have to put any money down? I mean, I had already bought a couple of houses myself, and I don't know whether you you go you have to fill out a gazillion yes. papers, and they check you this way to Sunday. Blood, yeah. yeah, and and all of a sudden, this, these people, uh, how where did they get these things? And uh, I just thought it was sort of crazy. So I started writing about you know. 
uh, here's what's going on, folks. And it just I just kept following the trail, thinking, and I would find people on Wall Street who would explain to me, you know, how they're slicing and dicing these things, and I would say, well, does that make sense? Isn't that a little dangerous? And they say, oh yeah, yeah, it is. Um, and uh, so I I became an early person uh, who was saying this is not going to end well, and. The thing that I noticed was that this is where the big uh, investment houses uh, and investment banks were making all their money. Um, you know, normally investment banks make their money by bringing bonds to the market or new stocks to the market. Ma, this they were doing all these other things. This is they were making fees, and this was the beginning. Or this was not so much the beginning, but this was the uh, this is when the shadow banking system, as it's called began to take over from the real banking system. Um, it's a, Explain that. Okay. So it used to be a bank makes a loan, holds the loan until the loan is paid back, and they earned interest every year, and that's how yeah. they make their money on the, on the interest payments uh, that they got. That's not how banks make money now. They make loans, and then they package them and slice and dice the packages and sell them off to investors who buy essentially a form of a bond, uh, which is backed by all of these loans, and they buy a piece of every loan in the package. And the way banks make money is through fees. They make a fee for making the loan, they make a fee for packaging the loan, they make a fee for selling the loan, but they have nothing to do with the loans once they sell the package. They wipe their hands of it. Right. Uh, and that's called the shadow banking system. And right now, it's bigger than the real banking system. What's the difference? The shadow banking system is unregulated, it's untransparent. You don't have to have the, the people who are involved in it don't have to have capital tied up doing nothing just to be there in case something goes bad. In short, the shadow banking system is a way to get around all the regulations and institutions we set up after the Great Depression to prevent there from being bank runs. Uh, it's, it's a way of getting around it. It appeared like it was more efficient, that it lowered the cost of capital, meaning it lowered what interest rates people had to pay to borrow money, but it didn't have all those safeguards. And so when we had the first test of that in 2008, it flunked the test. You had a run on the shadow banking system when everyone wanted to sell all these funny instruments and no one wanted to buy it. That's the equivalent of a bank run. Except mm -hmm. when we have a bank run, we have the Federal Reserve as a backstop. We have, we have deposit insurance. There's no deposit insurance, equivalent of deposit insurance in the shadow banking system. There's no Federal Reserve as a lender of last resort. There's no capital to, so, to absorb the, the early losses. And, and so we had basically a run on the shadow banking banking system that brought down the banking system. Um, the banking system itself was in pretty good shape, but it's the shadow banking system that actually brought down the system. Yeah. I remember, well, we arrived just in time yeah. to have to deal with that in, uh, in uh, 2009. And I remember all these dreadful discussions about how fragile the system was. How would you, uh, how would you, uh, rate the uh, the reforms that were made after uh, 2009 the steps that were taken to to write the system and uh, you know because now there's this discussion about rolling them back right uh, Dodd the short answer is no. that dodd frank was 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 a very reasonable um, and effective response for making sure that the banking system remained 
better better capitalized and less risky uh, and less susceptible to um, short-term interruptions in their financing. That said, it did very little to deal with the shadow banking system. Mm -hmm. And even uh, the person at the Fed um, who was sort of put in charge of that, um, Dan Terulo, maybe you knew Dan. Yes, I did. Um, uh, He... As he left the Fed a few years, a year or so ago, admitted that uh, they hadn't really been able to address the shadow banking system because that would require legislation, and they left the shadow banking pretty much uh, as it is. And so, what's happened, David, for example, is that the 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 packaging of mortgages has come back, but it's been pretty well done. But now we have other kinds of uh, new products that they're focused on, mainly having to do with corporate and business loans and the packaging of those um, and a lot of high leverage in the corporate credit sector um, that is going to be the source of the next problem. Um, So that uh, our failure to deal with the practices of the shadow banking system, which involve a lot of complicated instruments and derivatives, again, still unregulated, still no uh, uh, Fed backstop, uh, still no, uh, as a lender of last resort, still um, uh, no deposit insurance, um, and no capital requirements. Those will come back to haunt us one more time, and, and I think we're, you know, we're getting pretty close to that time. Yeah, I I wanted to ask about that. I just want to read your words from December of 2009. As you described all of this, you said, if this all sounds like a financial house of cards, that's because it is, and it's about to come crashing down with serious consequences, not only for banks and investors, but for the economy as a whole. That was prescient. It's one of the reasons you won the Pulitzer Prize. Um, How close do you think we are to that, uh, to a recurrence of that, and what could be done to prevent it? Uh, not much, <laughs> because 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 the, the obligations are out there. Uh, the the debt is incurred, um, uh, so uh, there's not much to do about it. Uh, I think it probably comes in the next two years. I think the focus will be in in sort of corporate credit. A lot of companies have taken on a lot of debt despite having record profits. They've still taken on record amount of debts, often time to buy back their shares or to buy other companies. How much of that is because interest rates have been so low? That's right. And that's why what's going to happen. Interest rates were so low, the cost of borrowing money was essentially zero for those folks. And uh, so, not surprisingly, they borrowed a lot. And as the price of money goes up and it gets to be 3 and 4%, and all of a sudden these, these loans, they, either the interest rate goes up on them or they become due and they have to roll them over, and they're going to roll them over from, instead of at 0%, they're going to roll them over at 4%, all of a sudden it doesn't make so much sense. And uh, they're going to get people who are going to get squeezed. And, you know, when, when people, when, when people, not when companies and, and entities stop paying their bills and say, look, we're not going to be able to pay you back on time or in full, then people start to get scared. And they say, ah, I wonder who else has got this problem. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and, and they start selling all of them. And so that's the run. When we uh, when we arrived, uh, President Bush had taken uh, some steps to sh- shore up the financial system. We inherited that and worked with that, but um, we had some tools. Uh, we we were, for example, able to pass this Recovery Act that provided some fiscal stimulus, and uh, and the uh, the Fed had their tools. And between the two of them, we were able to 
pull out of that hole. Uh, one of the things that worried me about the, the massive tax cut that was passed is if we now that we see deficits moving back up again, it's not going to be the maneuverability uh, to deal with another crisis. And the Fed itself has its limitations, having just gone through this. I mean, is that a, am I, I'm asking you because you know a hell of a lot more about this than I do. Am I, am I unnecessarily concerned? No. Um, look, we're going in, we're going, we're at the top of a cycle, the top of the economy. And our government is running virtually record level of, of, uh, of budget deficit. So if we're going to start doing fiscal stimulus and borrowing and spending more, it's going to be on top of a trillion dollars a year already. Uh, in uh, federal deficits. Um, and at some point, you know, the world isn't going to lend us um, that money. And similarly, although the Fed is raising interest rates uh, now, remember something. When we went into this 2008 crisis, and, and I may be off slightly on this, um, the Fed had a what's called a balance sheet, meaning they had basically borrowed two, they printed $2 trillion dollars and by the time we're finished, I think we're up to $5 trillion. Right. Okay, so, and we haven't sucked, they haven't sucked that extra $3 trillion back back up yet. Yeah. They've stopped They've stopped adding to it, but they haven't really done much to, to bring that money in. Well, that's, that's still out there, yeah. which means if they want to, to pump more f uh, monetary stimulus in, they're going to have to add on top of that. In both instances, uh, David, what we have is a situation where the economy has become addicted to the medicine. We've, we now have an economy that's addicted to this monetary and fiscal stimulus, and now we're going to have to give it more. And just the analogy holds, at some point, you're going to start giving the thing so much medicine uh, that you're going to hurt the patient. Right. And, and, and we need to get unaddicted to this kind of stimulus. Um, and it will be painful. Honestly, um, your and my friends, uh, uh, who are Democrats on the Fed, did not do the country well in 2015 and 16 by, rephrasing, by refusing to raise rates. Um, uh, they thought that we needed to let the economy run in order to get the recovery up. Mm -hmm. And it's true that the recovery was stronger because they did that. But the long-term consequences is that all that money they pumped in wound up going into the financial sector to create a credit bubble, which is what we were talking about, all that mm -hmm. corporate lending and borrowing that went on, and we created another bubble. And we just can't keep going from bubble to bubble to bubble. We need to get the economy so it's not so dependent on cheap money. We, um, we sit here on a day when there was a new jobs report, unemployment down to 3.7%. Best uh, since 1969, uh, and um, the expansion continues. It's been going on now for what eight years. Yep. Um, so certainly, the president and his supporters would say, "Never better. Things are moving along very well. Why don't they have the right to to say that?" And um, you know, what, what are you going to write about all of this? I've already written it. It's a mirage, just as it was a mirage in 2007. It, it, it looks like everything's great. And, you know, statistically it looks it. But, you know, if you borrow, uh, if you borrow an extra trillion dollars a year, live beyond your means, um, and, and, and 
pump that back into the economy so people are demanding a trillion dollars more in goods and services than they really can afford, um, then you can make things look pretty good. Uh, but it's not sustainable and it's not real. Those stock prices are mirage. They're, they're overvalued. Those property values, and I'm not talking about homes necessarily, although in places like New York and Boston and Washington and San Francisco, I am. Those, those, are, those prices have nothing to do with the ability of people's incomes. There's a level of speculation in them, and they represent the, value, the values that are pumped up by cheap money and by the fact that the government is spending more um, than it's taking in creating this artificial uh, prosperity. Uh, on, an, on a steady state, sustainable basis, where we're, prices shouldn't be this high, income shouldn't be this high, GDP shouldn't be this high. Um, and it's a mirage. And, you know, the market will finally, you know, the fever will break or the bubble will burst, and we'll see that. Uh, it doesn't have to be as bad as last time. I don't think it would be. Uh, but there's going to be a significant correction in financial markets, and that will cause, you know, an economic shrinkage of some sort. In a recession? Probably. Uh, so tell me about... Uh, why you've written this book, and because I, I think about this a lot, um, the the sub uh, head to this is why greed is not good, opportunity is not equal, and fairness uh, won't make us poor. Um, this is the big debate. I mean, one of the things that we missed in 2016 was a real debate about the times in which we live, the state of our democracy, and the state of capitalism itself, and. You talk about sustainability. I mean, that's really what you're writing about here, whether uh, these levels of inequality uh, are sustainable. Um, and, and inequality and the ruthlessness by which our businesses uh, conduct themselves and uh, um, basically this sort of I'm out for this myself ethic um, that characterizes too much these days of our interaction. Also the Gordon the, Gecko philosophy. The Gordon Gecko Greed philosophy. Is Greed is good or the corporate equivalent of that, which is companies must be run solely for the benefit uh, of their shareholders. Um, there is a tyranny of the quarterly report that seems to command corporate decisions. Yeah, and that didn't used to be. Um, so uh, you asked the question of why I wrote the book. Um, I got sort of frustrated. You know, I do, I've been doing this for a long time, and I've been writing about these issues for a long time. And I noticed that this sort of conversation about these issues had gotten very stale. It had gotten very predictable, a lot of easy moralizing on both the left and the right. Um, and uh, I, I felt that maybe what I could contribute was trying to figure out um, this dilemma that, in fact, you, you raised right from the beginning, which is why, if everything is going so well in our economy, do we feel so bad about it? Um, why is it that more than half of millennials don't support capitalism? Why is it that 57% of Democrats um, are intrigued by the idea of socialism, whatever that happens to mean? I'm not sure they know, but in right. any case, it, it's why is it that my students, when I say, who wants to go, my good students, who is it that uh, wants to go and work in big companies? Uh, who wants to go work on Wall Street? 
you know, 25 kids, maybe one or two maybe will raise their hand somewhat sheepishly, knowing that the others won't actually uh, look well on that uh, and say they want to do that. Uh, you, you teach at George Mason? Uh, I do. University. I teach at George Mason, and I teach in the Honors College uh, every semester, one sort of like a freshman seminar. Um, and I love those classes, but those kids, those kids don't, don't like capitalism. They think it's, uh, they think it's uh, run off the moral rails. They think it's uh, lost its moral legitimacy. Uh, and well, that's you, what I try to do. You seem to, to feel with. that way too. I do, and I do, and I tried to figure out what happened uh, because it, you know back it wasn't that long ago when we were we were we were feeling pretty good about American capitalism. It not only had it defeated communism, but um, some of us are, are old enough to remember when competitiveness was the big issue. We were going to lose out to Japan and Germany. And we turned that around. Uh, So what happened? Well, what happened is we pushed things too far. Um, Some of the ideas that we needed to embrace in order to make our economy more competitive again in the late 80s and the early 90s, um, we pushed those ideas way too far. Ideas like uh, greed is good. Uh, Ideas like, you you know, companies only exist to maximize shareholder values. Ideas like um, the money that we earn in the marketplace is a accurate and objective um, reflection of each of our individual economic contribution. And we shouldn't tamper with that because it's so much sacred. The market has determined that. Uh, Or here's this another idea we embrace, that if you make things fairer, if you slice the pie in more equal slices, you'll make the pie uh, smaller. That there's a trade-off between fairness and growth. And if you want more fairness, you're just going to have to take less growth. And it turns out that many of these ideas, although there was a germ of truth to it, um, they were wrong. And so what I wanted to do in this book is to show how and why they're wrong so that we can sort of... um, start again to think about a system that works differently and that is more consistent with the moral instincts that we all have when we hear a story about, say, um, a guy who earns, a guy who runs a a company called the Blackstone Group who earns $800 million a year. Steve Schwartzman. Right. Do you think anyone really contributes, Steve Schwartzman really contributes $800 million worth of economic advantage a year? Uh, uh, No, he doesn't. That's, that's, that's the result of all sorts of um, political decisions and imperfections in our marketplace on which he, um, on which uh, he's taken advantage of. It doesn't mean he's not worth a lot, but I can assure you that you can't show that he is worth $800 million a year, but not $400 million a year. Um, that that reflects a lot of decisions we've made as a society, which if we wanted to change those decisions, the market would say he's all of a sudden worth $400 million, and maybe we should consider those changes. Um, he did uh, equate when President Obama wanted to uh, do away with a preference that uh, people in his sector have that seemed unwarranted. He he uh, equated it with Nazism. Right. It was indignant. You were you were stealing from me what I what I earned, what I legitimately earned, which is true. He legitimately earned it, but he thought that what he earned was an objective uh, um, measure of his contribution. And it isn't an objective. It's a subjective measure. Um, and uh, that's where he's wrong. Uh, that's, one, you know, that's where he's wrong about You that. talked about politics. Yeah. Um, how much has the, um, the capture of government policy by special interests contributed to 
the environment you describe? Significantly, but I don't consider that the main driver of this. Um, because I think the original sin is that we embrace these ideas um, that that allowed us to change social norms and business norms. Suddenly, it became okay that Steve Schwartzman makes $800 million a year. If you'd gone back to the 1960s, if any CEO had tried to pay himself that much, he would have been socially shunned. Uh, not just, by the way, by his employees or when he went downtown, but when he went to the country club, the other CEOs would have said, "Don't you know? You can't do that. That just makes us all look bad." Um, the behavior of companies toward their employees. Yes, companies needed to get leaner and meaner, and there needed to be some layoffs. And we needed to uh, uh, we needed to compete with uh, foreign products so that we became better at doing those rather than just keeping them out with uh, tariffs and other barriers. We needed to do those things, but and we needed to take some hard choices. But when you lay off your IT, uh, you know, thousands of IT employees, as, as some companies did, and they say, look, we won't give you your severance unless you train the Indian workers who are bringing over here to replace you. Um, that's the sort of thing that, that people say, you know, that's wrong. Um, when you hear about Wells Fargo, you know, uh, thousands of, of people had accounts set up in their name by employees who uh, fake accounts so that employees could meet their objectives. And then we find out later that, well, there's a lot of executives who knew about um, that kind of fraud and didn't do anything about it. That's a change in what is, you know, moral acceptability. There was a time in American business where if you found out your colleague did that, you wouldn't have, have accepted that. You would have blown the whistle on him. You would have left the company. It just How do you put that genie back in the bottle? That's hard. Changing social norms is hard, David, but it's not impossible because we see it happening right before our eyes. Whatever you think of the Me Too movement, uh, whether you think it's gone too far or not far enough, that is a change of social norms right mm -hmm. in front of our eyes. Um, you can change them. What is socially acceptable yesterday is not socially acceptable today. Um, and we need to reassert ourselves as investors and as consumers and as employees in ways that make that kind of behavior not acceptable. And if you do that, then the laws and the regulations change sort of naturally. And I, I guess when your question presupposes that we change the laws and the regulations because of politics, and that changed the norms, and I would argue it goes the other way around. The norms changed, and that changed the laws and the regulations. And if we want to change the laws and regulations back, we need to change the norms first. Um, you, uh, you work for the, you've worked for the Post for for 30 years now. Yeah. Uh, they had a change of management. You now work for a guy named Jeff Bezos, who has a sidelight called Amazon, right. <laughs> uh, in addition to the Washington Post. How, uh, do, you, do you find yourself writing about his enterprise, or do you stay away from that? No, I wrote a pretty big story uh, a few months back called Is Amazon Too Big? I think that was the headline. Um, uh, but it was not just about Amazon, but it was about the failure of our antitrust law to keep up with you know, a changing economy and a changing way in which companies compete each other and that sort of thing. That's um, one of your big concerns is the that consolidation. That constant concentration in, in too many industries, um, which, by the way, happens naturally in today's world because of technology and because of globalization it's not it's not that someone you know that jeff bezos rigged the system that's just a, that's just the way competition goes but because of that we need to 
change our antitrust law to reflect the changing conditions, and we're not doing it. But anyway, as to Amazon, so I wrote that story. I passed it in. I don't think anyone changed a word. I never heard a word about it from anybody uh, above me. Um, and uh, so one thing about Jeff Bezos is he does let the reporters do their work. Mm-hmm. Um, but the second thing that Jeff, you mentioned, Jeff Bezos, just this week, uh, he announced that he was right. raising the minimum wage uh, quite considerably across his country, uh, his company, and by the way, saying urging other companies to do the same, and saying he was going to support legislation so, to make ever the com- companies mm-hmm. do the same. Um, that was a huge change. But why did Jeff Bezos do that? He did it because of changing social norms. Mm-hmm. There were, there were customers of his who were starting not to do business with him because they didn't like the way uh, he conducted his business, as, particularly as it related to employees. And here's what I think is the more important factor, although I don't know this for sure, I'm guessing. He was having trouble attracting top technology talent and top marketing talent because those young people who, want, who, uh, who had a choice of where to work, would rather work at companies that they felt um, had better corporate culture and culture, uh, corporate behavior. And it's the competition for talent that I think was probably more important than anything. He's going to try to open a new somewhere. We don't know yet, where yet. Uh, we're hoping in Washington that it's somewhere around Washington. But anyway, he's going to open a whole new corporate headquarters, employ tens of thousands of people. And he's going to have to attract people, uh, talented people uh, from all over the country in order to do that. And if he's in competition with the Googles of the world or the Facebooks of the world or the Teslas of the world, uh, you know, he, he can't be a bad corporate actor because they don't want to work for him, yeah. as, as my students are telling me and maybe as yours are telling you. We're kind of hoping they come to Chicago, but I take <laughs> I take your point. Uh, you a few years ago, you wrote a comment, I think 2012, and you referred to uh, uh, to Brett Kavanaugh, who's on the on the uh, uh, circuit court in in, uh, in D.C. as I think you said a political hack and uh, political hack in a black robe. I think was the exact phrase. Yeah. Um, uh, it, again, may, it, as we speak, that it looks as if he's going to have right. a more exalted robe. And um, I, I think he, I think his nomination is dangerous uh, because um, of his philosophy uh, having to do with regulation um, and, to some degree, um, to, uh, protecting interests that are associated with and are big contributors to the Republican Party. Uh, but he he is in the vanguard of what a, what prompted you to write that particular column it was a it was about a decision that he had authored uh, uh, having to do with an environmental regulation and this regulation was incredibly complicated and the EPA and all 50 states had been working on this regulation and negotiating for years and years it had actually been up to the court already once and sent back down um, just almost a decade of work had been spent trying to come up with regulations that all the states could do. And it, it, what it concerned, David, was pollution that was produced in one state that wafted over the border yeah. into other states and how to apportion the, 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 the cost of fixing it up. Because how do you know where it came from? It's sort of hard to know. Right. And so they came up with some formulas that they thought made sense. And after all this work, 
he just basically threw it out saying, oh, you didn't dot this I and you didn't cross this T and you, you know, just a, a sort of ridiculously nitpicky um, a, a, a effort to, to derail that regulation. He was, by the way, that decision was overturned. Uh, but it was a pretty good example of, um, of basically activist judging. It's kind of ironic because that, that's always been the battle cry of conservatives that we don't want an activist yeah, court. Well, but they, they, they do. It's hypocrisy, is, really. They, um, they, they are now the activist judges. And I, by the way, am not arguing that the liberals weren't in, 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 the, in the Warren mm -hmm. Court era and it, really up until the 1980s quite activist. Mm -hmm. But now we're, again, now we're seeing it just in the other way. Um, and, and what do you think the impact of his being on the court will be? Significant. He is the leader of, of a group of, of judges, including, by the way, Neil Gorsuch, who is on the, already now on the court, mm -hmm. um, who have challenged a, an, a precedent called the Chevron precedent. Yes. Okay. And the Chevron precedent, which go, dates back to the 1980s, was the Supreme Court said, look, when Congress writes laws. They write it in general language, and, and well, they should, because, you know, they're trying to, uh, to deal with problems that haven't yet come up with. They want to make the law flexible enough to be able to respond to changing conditions and changing technology. Uh, and they leave it, and the, the Chevron uh, decision said, look, Congress writes the laws this way, and we should defer to the agencies in the way in which they respond, use the law to respond to changing conditions. And if they take a reasonable effort um, to issue regulations under the law, we should defer to their judgment, both their judgment about the law, but also their judgment about what's needed to be done. Kavanaugh is leading the fight to say we shouldn't defer to the agencies. And he's announced a sort of doctrine which is on major regulations, i.e. all the ones that really count, on major regulations, unless the law says exactly, specifically, you, sh you may do this in this way, that the court should say, sorry, you can't issue that regulation. If you want Congress to say that, go back and get Congress to write the law, which, as you know, getting Congress to do anything, uh, right. let alone something controversial, is virtually impossible. Um, so the effect of, of his approach, which is uh, to, to get rid of Chevron deference, uh, as, it, as it relates to major regulation, what will really will mean, David, is that there won't be any major regulation uh, as long as he and and his uh, cohorts are in are, are in a majority in the court. And that that rela that relates to environmental regulation, antitrust, uh, consumer protection, financial regulation. I'd like to tell you about one recent decision that very few people ever, uh, and it goes back to our original conversation, that very few people are aware of. Recently, in the last several months, his court, with his, he's one of the three uh, on the panel who voted for this, he didn't write the decision, um, said, Congress and, and Dodd-Frank said, look, if you're, if you're an investment bank and you're going to collect all these loans and put them into packages and sell them, knowing perhaps that some of those loans aren't such good loans. Mm -hmm. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to say, if you want to make those packages and chop them up and sell them off to people, you have to retain 20% of the risk so that if you're making bad loans that you're selling off to other people, you're going to suffer with them. 
Yeah. Okay. And Congress couldn't have been any more clear and explicit about it. They said this applies to every kind of loan and every kind of package and every kind of issuer. So what did the wise guys on Wall Street do? They said, ah, the, the law said th that the, the person, the, the entity that packaged and sold the loans must retain, the word was, was used, retain a 20% interest. So what did the wise guys on Wall Street and their, and their Yale law-educated friends in the, in the legal firms no do? No Harvard people in there. Yeah, none there. Uh, what they decided to do was, look, we can set this up so that the investment bank that, or the manager of this package identifies the loan, identifies the people who want to buy the packages, and sets up a trust so that the, that the loans go immediately to the trust this independent entity that's owned by basically no, no, nobody, no. and that we, the investment bank or the, the packagers, never actually take ownership of the loans. Therefore, we, don't, we can't be forced liable. to retain no, no. anything because we never owned it, so how could we retain it? Mm -hmm. Okay, this is very clever lawyering. Okay, we can admit that. But Kavanaugh basically said, okay, well, that's right. Well, what, what that is, it was like a, it was like a roadmap to all these wise guys on Wall Street, now this is how we're going to securitize loans. We'll never take ownership of it. And now th th probably the most important thing that they did in Dodd-Frank in terms of regulating the shadow banking system, the only thing they were able to get away with, now Kavanaugh and his two Federal Society colleagues, because they both were Federalist Society colleagues, have now eviscerated that that thing. And you know, it's very technical, and he's very clever. I can tell you, he's a very clever writer and a very clever lawyer. But fundamentally, he ignored the express intent of the Congress um, because he was playing little word games with the word retain. And that's the kind of judge that you can expect uh, on the Supreme Court. He'll f he will be very clever in finding any possible excuse to throw out any major regulation. Well, that doesn't, doesn't suggest that um, the uh, concerns that you've raised in this book are likely to be uh, meet with uh, uh, receptivity on the part of the Supreme Court, at least the solutions to these. No, for example, I have a whole big thing on, on how we need to revamp antitrust law to, you right. know, be, because the precedents all come from the industrial era, and now we're not only in a post-industrial era, we're sort of in a post-post-industrial yeah. era, and we have uh, precedents that don't apply and, and, and can't, can't deal with the kind of consolidation that you have with a company like, say, Amazon. All the precedents that come back from the 80s are that you can you know when a company is gotten too big and too powerful when it can raise prices. Okay, so what do you do about a company that's lowering prices and taking over the world? Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's the, the, what the antitrust law says now is you do nothing because they're lowering prices. So it, therefore, right. it must so be good for consumers. Thinking, yeah. Well, that's actually not true anymore. Right. Um, we have we have products that don't cost anything. What does Facebook cost? It doesn't cost anything. So how can you talk about raising and lowering prices when there is no price? Right. So we just don't have the we don't have the law. We don't have the case law, and we actually don't have the underlying economic theory yet. To, to create a new antitrust law, but I can assure you there will be no new antitrust law as long as Brett Kavanaugh is on the Supreme Court. Well, on that cheerful note, I want to thank you, Steve 
Pearlstein. The book is Can American Capitalism Survive? I hope that this book and the ideas in this book uh, are central to the debate that we have uh, moving forward, because I think it is central also to this project of democracy. People lose faith in one, they're going to lose faith in the other. Well, you can't, you can't, you can't have trust in each other. Uh, if you don't have trust in each other and trust in, each, in social institutions, you don't have a willingness to cooperate, then not only does democracy not work, but capitalism doesn't work. Well, one hopes those new norms that you're speaking about, restored norms, uh, take hold. Uh, Steve Perlstein, thanks for being here at the University of Chicago at the Institute of Politics and, uh, and with me. Well, thanks for having me. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.